Hey, I want to apologize for the technical difficulties that we had uh, Sunday when I recorded this sermon. Uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't press the on button for the receiver that goes into the phone that we that we use to record our sermons. But I wanted to record this because I think it's a very important sermon uh, in this Luke series. <clears throat> And I want to make sure that we get all of the, the sermons uh, recorded uh, for, for you, the, the watcher, the, the listener, uh, the viewer of, these, uh, of these, this, this sermon series, especially this one. This is a very important uh, sermon in, in the life of, of this series, in the life of our church. And uh, I wanted to, to make sure that I, uh, that I recorded it and, uh, and, and we had it for us because it's a very important uh, sermon. So I introduced the sermon on Sunday uh, with the clip from the, my, one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. And if you had a chance right now, go ahead and pause this and scroll over to YouTube and watch The Princess Bride, Miracle Max scene. And so that's, that's the sermon, that's the video that I introduced this sermon to uh, on Sunday. And so go, go ahead and scroll over to that. And I can't really put it, you know, post it on, on social media because uh, copyright stuff. So uh, scroll over to YouTube and, and check it out uh, and, then, and then come back. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wait for you. Just kidding. But <laughs> and so you know, I introduced this sermon there. Um, and uh, so basically that, you know, that in The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya uh, wanted, to, wanted Miracle Max to bring Wesley back to life. He's our main, the main character in the story. So that they could break into the castle and kill the six-fingered man so that he could avenge his father's death. That was the whole, you know, the reason why Inigo Montoya was bringing Wesley, our key character, into, uh, over to, to Miracle Max himself. Uh, so that he could bring him back to life with a miracle pill, right? Um, he wanted to stop the wedding between Princess Buttercup and Prince Upperdink uh, in order to reunite Wesley with his true love, Buttercup. And, and, and with that, and that's the, the whole basis of the scene uh, from, from, the, from Princess Bride. Um, so if, if you've seen it, awesome. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie because Billy Crystal is just a great character. He plays a great character in that movie. Um, but I, I wanted us to, to, get, to have that in, in our minds as we are, uh, are reading this passage, and so, um, and so, uh, so read with me if you, if you can, if you will. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to be um, reading uh, 50 through 50, verse 50 through 56. It says this, There was a good and righteous man named, jo- named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock, where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you'd bless this time uh, of, of preaching. Lord, bless this time of reading and going through the, your word. And Lord, as we, as we discover your desire for, for us, Lord, that your, your, your hope and your joy that was set before you at the cross, and Lord, as you rested in the tomb, as you stayed in the tomb for those three days, uh, and Lord, we know that you did not die and, and stay buried. You did not stay dead, but Lord, you rose. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would give us that hope, give us that joy, give us a revelation of that in, during, during our time in your word. Lord, use me as your mouthpiece, Lord Jesus. Speak, to, speak through me. Speak to me and speak through me as I preach this, this message. 
um, for, for us to delve into and that we may discover more of you and, dis- and discover more of your goodness through this time together. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, so in our, in our, uh, our Western uh, societal thinking, um, we have this desire for, for proof. There's this proof, proof texting, there's this evidence. Give me evidence, right? There's been this, this thought over the many, many years that you have to prove beyond shadow of a doubt um, that something happened for evidence to be known, for evidence to be seen or to be experienced. Um, but it's interesting that how in our culture today, in our Western society, that this mentality seems to be somewhat fading. Um, human reality is that you know, people need um, to know the meaning and purpose and how it gives our lives meaning and purpose. So even beyond this whole co- concept that, you know, people might concede that something might be factually true, but if you can't describe why it matters, they won't devote themselves to that belief as, as fact. So this whole des- desire for, for proof and evidence there, that's still there. I'm not to say that it's not that's going away, but I would even say that people's desire for the meaning and purpose, it, you know, a lot of times even will supersede or trump these things. Um, it's called this this phrase uh, cognitive dissonance comes to mind, where facts and figures and truths that are that are that are presented to us, um, they 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 uh, combat against our preconceived notions. And our prejudices and our maybe our, our as the word you know biases you know comes up, uh, or just the way that we've thought about something before. If it comes up and it rubs up against something in our heart and our spirit of something that seems and feels like more of a pillar of that which gives our lives meaning and purpose, it's either you know impossible to get uh, someone to to shift their thinking or to change their minds, or it's a lot more difficult at at the very least. Um, and so to say that our faith is not about facts and truths necessarily and specifically, but it's about meaning and purpose because of those facts and, and truths, right? Um, so our faith is not about, uh, about all these, about you know, trying to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt all these different facts and things. I mean, there's even stories after story, and I keep keep talking about it, right? Where there's people that have come to faith, and you know, before they came to faith, they were like, "I will not believe in God. I will not believe in Jesus unless you can prove to me beyond the shadow of a doubt and answer all these specific questions that I have. When I get answers to all these questions, then I'll become a Christian. Then I'll go and be baptized. Then I'll go and become a church member, a church follower, a God, a Jesus follower." But it's interesting how. I've seen story after story where, where these people went, you know, went to church and they just had a radical experience with God. They had a radical experience with the Holy Spirit. And none of those answers were necessarily answered that day. But they were like, I'm all in because I experienced the living God. And that experience has given my life purpose and meaning because I've experienced and encountered the living God in a way that I believe. And that belief, that, that encounter was, is now worth my full life's devotion. And then maybe they got answers later, or maybe they never got them, but even the questions now become framed in this, in this, you know, framed in the meaning and the purpose in that 
it gives those experiences the truth and purpose that is, that it may even be beyond explanation, beyond describing to where those questions either were answered by the experience themselves or those questions are basically like, yeah, those are dumb questions. Those questions don't mean anything because I've encountered truth, real truth. And I don't even care about those questions anymore. And so this, this concept of, you know, that fact that our faith is built, is, 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 is founded upon meaning and purpose because of who God is, but it's built upon the foundation of facts and truths. And so let's talk about a few of those facts that we're going to be talking about. That fact, God is real. Fact, the Bible is true. Fact, Christ physically, really, literally died. Fact, Christ was buried, physically, literally buried. And fact, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the tomb. He didn't stay there. He didn't stay dead. He rose physically, literally, walked out of the tomb. So that, so the, 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 the basis of our time together is here is, this morning is, so that, why are all this? So God is real. The Bible is true. Christ died. Christ was buried and Christ rose so that what? We would live. So that we would live. So that we would be reconciled to God. So that we would die with him. So that we would be buried with him. So that we would rise with him. So that we would live with him for all eternity in his presence. So that we and God would have eternal joy, the deepest joy and have it to full and to overflowing. So that life and joy is the so that. So that. Because Jesus didn't suffer and die the way he did for rules and regulations. He, Jesus did not die for a religious lifestyle, for doing the do's and the don'ts of life. Jesus didn't die for good morals and values. Jesus didn't die for a new set of do's and don'ts, of values and morals, just as though our faith was a, a moral replacement for things, or a moral or, or values-based faith or organization. We're just a values and morals-based organization. He suffered and died to fully bring us back into life, flourishing in relationship with the living God of the universe. That's why Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, to bring you back into relationship with him. That is meaning and purpose. That's the whole meaning and purpose of the cross and the tomb. That is the whole meaning and purpose of the entire gospel and our whole faith. Remember, as we look in this passage today, as we remember all these things of what Christ did so that, remember, we have to look at all these things, the death and today, of course, as we're talking about the, the burial of Christ through the lens of the resurrection. We can't just enter into this like esoteric, you know, melancholy experience of sorrow, 
um, as though like we're trying to enter into the death and burial and depression of, of God and the depression of the, of the disciples. But we have to remember that we're looking at these instances through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Post, you know, where we live now, 2,000 years removed from the resurrection, from the, from the burial of Christ, because we're living on this side of the resurrection. Because remember, again, 1 Corinthians 15, like we talked about last week. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The only reason that we can leave a sermon like this or even engage in the subject of talking about the burial of Jesus, the only reason we can read these words without just wallowing in depression and sorrow about the burial of Jesus is because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because remember, Luke is talking to Gentiles after, I mean, decades after all this stuff happened. So everyone who's reading this already knows that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's read it with that same thing. The account of the death and burial of Jesus is to set up the resurrection. That's its purpose. Jesus died fully. Jesus died. The purpose of it was to rise again. Because in order to rise again, he had to die. And Jesus died and was raised so that we would live. And that we would live in that life with him. And that we would be inspired and encouraged and filled with joy because of that life and that hope of the resurrection. So talking about so that and facts and figures and stuff, there was a, there was a, a, a book that was written quite a while ago called The Case for Christ by a guy named Lee Strobel. And there's even, there's even a movie that I got to watch. And if you, if you have PureFlix, go check it out. Go to you know, PureFlix.com and check it out. It's, it is worth the $7.99 a month uh, to subscribe to PureFlix. It's awesome. Whole bunch of movies and TV shows and all sorts of great things. And one of those movies that's on there is called The Case for Christ. And it's all about Lee Strobel's discovery of Christ. You know, his wife, uh, you know, his wife and him were both just like staunch atheists. They, they did not love the church. They hated the church. They, they mocked Christians. They made fun of the church and, and all these people who live, who believe in this, you know, sky, sky ghost thing, you know, sky deity, sky, you know, you know sky dad, um, you know, just like made up atheism, right? Uh, or made, made up religion. And that's what caused their atheism. They, atheism. He was a, an investigative journalist and so his wife had a radical encounter with God. She went to a, you know, she had an experience uh, in their marriage with their son almost dying and, and was like, you know, and it, re- it really wrecked her. And so she went and started to seek. And she went to church and asked someone about the hope that was in them. And, and I tell you what, it was, just a, it was just beautiful, like just this beautiful expression, this incredible encounter that she had. And... And she came to faith, was baptized, and, and was being discipled, and tried to invite lead, lead a church, and he wouldn't have it. And so he set out to prove that God and Christianity and the Bible and everything was a crock, that it was false, that atheism was the true, you know, truth, truth, that there was no God and there was no hope, basically. But along the way, he 
he discovered all these things. And we're going to talk a little bit more about these things. But the things that he had to go and he researched all these things from the beginning to the end. And he ended up himself becoming a believer. And he wrote the case for Christ and the case for heaven and the case for Jesus, the case for the resurrection. Because here's all the things. Like, you know, about the, our, we believe that all of these things in the Bible, that this is a history book. It's not just a fantasy. It writes of all these different lovely stories and stuff. These things actually happened. The death of Jesus actually happened. The burial of Jesus factually happened. It is factually true. It literally happened. And basically saying, you know, what they're saying to the people who are reading these things is that, yes, you heard correctly. Jesus physically and literally died. He didn't swoon, right? So this is one of the things that, that Lee Strobel in his research had to, had to actually prove. You know, before he could ever look into the resurrection and try to disprove the resurrection, he had to first prove, set out to prove that Jesus actually died. There's a theory called swoon theory where they say that Jesus just kind of passed out. And, and he went to sleep, and he just kind of passed on the cross. Could Jesus, could you know, a man who was the, this Bible is referring to, the scourging of Jesus Christ, I mean, the beating alone, and then the scourging of Jesus Christ, the being up for, you know, overnight, didn't get a, a lick of sleep, and was then, you know, had to walk to, after being scourged, which, you know, could have caused his death in the first place, you know, then after the scourging, he walked the Via Dolorosa, carrying the cross beam of his cross, of his execution beam, was nailed to the cross, and then, was, and then died. And then a spear shoved through his side, and blood and water came spilling out. And all that stuff, you know, say he swooned, say he just passed out, and then he was buried for three days. And then somehow was able to lift and break through this giant stone that, was, that weighed tons, literally tons, and then not only that, but to defeat a Roman garrison and then to walk seven miles to Emmaus the next day, the next morning, and then run and then walk back, right? And then all, do all the things. It was physically impossible. And not only that, but basically that the Romans themselves were experts at killing. The, the Romans were experts. They, were, they knew great, you know, great things about the human body. They knew when it was dead. They knew when a human body was done, was done, was gone, right? Human soul gone. They knew how to kill people. They knew how to make people suffer and how to kill them. And if they, if it was found out that the Romans didn't succeed in their killing of someone and they escaped, there was rem, those Roman centurions, those Roman guards would be killed themselves. And so they made sure that he was dead. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He actually suffered and he actually died. His heart stopped. It was run through with a spear to prove it. He was physically and literally buried. And so that's what he had to prove. Lee Strobel had to prove all these things, that he completely was dead. He was all dead. Not just, like we're talking about in, in, in Princess Bride, you know, he wasn't just mostly dead, you know, whereas though he was still somewhat alive. No, he was completely and totally dead. The only thing that you could do was to rummage through his pockets and look for spare change. That is you know, how, how America Max refers to it. Jesus was all dead. Dead. Completely. Luke's account of the burial of Jesus. Jesus' account, uh, I'm sorry, Luke's account of the burial of Jesus um, was to give testimony to all of the events recorded in Jesus' life. Because think about this. Luke was a Gentile. He was a Western-thinking Gentile. 
writing to other Western-thinking Gentiles throughout the Roman Western Empire. I mean, America as a society is very much like the Roman Empire in the first centuries. Because we, that, I mean, America is really where we got our culture. I mean, sorry, Rome is where we, basically as America, America got our culture. Our ways of government, our, our ways of politics, our way of economics was from the Roman Empire. We got our ways of, of society, you know, basically copy and paste them. You know, go to Washington, D.C. There's books and, and letters and writings all about this and basically can just copy paste. And they say, you know, we did this because the Romans did this. And they did, we did this because the Romans did this. And so we, we basically stole the Roman Empire's you know, economics and politics for us as an American culture. We, we stole their ways of thinking. And so we, you know, so, so Luke is, is writing these things as specifically evidence. Evidence that can give your life meaning and purpose. Not just evidence for the history books, but evidence that is history so that we can base our life and our, and our purpose as, a, as human beings during our earthly existence, believing and devoting our, our lives to this belief. Luke wasn't a religious writer. He was a, he was a very well historian. I mean, let's look at these different things. As eyewitness accounts were so vital to that, to, to, to the writing. So look at 1 John. What, what was seen from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was, that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. For we are writing, the, writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's writing historical facts so that you will believe and have joy. So that you will know about this thing that happened historically back, you know, for him, it was a few decades before. But so that you may have joy because the things that actually happened, you can stake your life on. Let's look at Luke. I mean, Luke himself introduces his gospel with this, with this phrase. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about Matthew and, 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 and Mark, most likely. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write you to you an orderly sequence. Most honorable Theophilus. Theophilus. That's you. It says the word Theophilus is lover of God. Now there are some people that would say that that's a title of a person or a name of a person, but there's many commentaries, and including the ones that I read recently with N.T. Wright, they're saying, no, that's you. You who love God, you who are a, are a lover of God, who are most likely reading this book, that you are they're already starting from the basis of you are a lover of God, wanting to get to know Jesus intimately through reading this and getting to hear his words and to hear about the hope and hear about the what? As John said, the joy, so that your joy may be complete. You, lover of God, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So you could stake your hat on it. Basically he's saying you can rely on this testimony book. You can, you, can, you can put your stake in that. That You can trust these facts. I've researched them. I've tested them. I've talked to the eyewitnesses and gotten a, a first-hand eyewitness account. Everything Luke is writing here is in our passage today is giving us the very thing that he set out in this passage to do and promised us to give evidence 
and eyewitness accounts. Carefully investigated, orderly sequence. Know with certainty. You can, you can stake your life on it. About, you know, these accounts are historical. They're, they're historically personal. They're, he's doing historical things that would impact and are still impacting today the world around us for generations to come until the very end of time. Think about this. Even the Roman centurion's proclamation. This was an answer, you know, basically that Luke is writing to already, you know, even like Roman loyalists, you know, doubters and you know, um, agnostics or skeptics of the resurrection. This Roman centurion's proclamation that, you know, because think about this, a Roman, Roman centurion, a Roman citizen who's already a doubter would be a Roman, would be loyal to Rome. They'd be like saying, you know, if Roman justice was, you know, if Roman justice executed Jesus, then there must have been some legitimate reason. There must have been, you know, because I trust Rome. I trust, our just, I trust our justice system. Jesus was probably crucified because he probably did something wrong, right? Um, but Luke here presents us with multiple eyewitness accounts from Roman authorities, not just Roman citizens, Roman authorities, stating that Jesus was, in fact, innocent, did not deserve death, and was righteous. I mean, think about how many times he quoted Pilate saying, this man is innocent, this man has done nothing wrong, this man has done nothing to deserve death. Then you see this, this centurion saying, surely, truly, this man was actually righteous. And so much so that he was even associating this man with a title for the Roman emperor. Worship to emperor, son of God, and as it says in, in John and, and the and book of Mark. This Roman centurion is quoted as saying, this man was the son of God, or at least a son of God, which is to attribute something that you would only attribute to the Roman emperor. So this Roman centurion is saying that this man is equal to Caesar. This is, a, for them, almost a blasphemous statement for a Roman citizen, much less a Roman authority to give. Luke gives good character witnesses to those who were witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. These weren't lawless rebels. These were law-abiding abiding citizens and, and people of trusted and respected authority. That's why the, it's so important of these eyewitness statements. That's why these eyewitnesses are so important. Like in our own, our own legal system, right? We have eyewitnesses, and, and, and the, the, sta you know, the state um, bases their case on these eyewitness accounts or video evidence, photographic evidence, evidence that, that, that suggests that this person did, or did this or did that. Well, let's look at a couple of these different figures. So Joseph of Arimathea is our first, our first figure here. So this, me this man isn't just some Jewish guy, right? He is a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the chief priest. This is the, the top level of authority in all of Israel at that time. In the, that's based there in Jerusalem, in the temple, which is the center of Jewish life, economics, and politics in that day. This man was, a, was, was known among them to be, a, as it says, a good and righteous man who also believed in Jesus' innocence. He, said, did, he didn't, didn't agree with, what the, with their plan and their action, as it says. But it's interesting to see that this man does, makes a bold move. He goes and he asks for Jesus' body. Why is this so bold? He goes to Pilate, a Gentile, to ask for Jesus' body. He is clearly and openly identifying himself with a man who's just been condemned and crucified. 
God, you know, think about that. You know, think about the boldness of that. You know, Pilate would be like, why are you, are you one of his followers? Do I need to crucify you too? Or are, they, are, they, are, they, are the Sanhedrin, the rest of the Sanhedrin going to come and ask me to crucify you too? I mean, this guy is now associating himself with Jesus as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, putting himself in direct opposition to the corrupt political and economical establishment of Israel um, that just killed this man, that just killed Jesus. He's putting himself in direct opposition of those people. And as well, think about this. So at the end of, of, of uh, John 19 specifically, we're told uh, that Nicodemus comes and he joins uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And, Nic and Nicodemus is not just a, one of the, the, the leading Pharisees. He is known in Israel as the teacher. This is like the Billy Graham of the Pharisees. He is the teacher of Israel. Helped Joseph. This, not only Joseph of Arimathea, one of the chief priests, but also now we've got this, this main preacher, this main teacher of the Jewish faith throughout all of Israel, joining forces with, with, with Joseph of Arimathea in order to associate themselves in their belief with Jesus himself in his death. They're identifying with Jesus in his death. Now let's talk about that death. Let's talk about the tomb for a little bit. What was the tomb? The tomb is a cave. So tombs, you know, can, can be, you know, either, either man-made, like a mausoleum today for, for us in our cemeteries, or they could be natural, you know, caves that they put a big stone over, uh, just kind of roll a stone over the, over the entrance to these things. They're, you know, naturally made by washout and things from, from, uh, from rain and water runoff and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, being, having been to Israel, I mean, there are caves everywhere, all over the, all over the mountainsides. Uh, especially like down by the Dead Sea, there's just like hundreds of them all over this wall, all over this place. Um, and so this, this cave is most likely, for Joseph, it's meant for him and his family. Uh, and the thing about these, these caves is that you, they're, they're, you can use them for several different corpses. Most of these caves had like three or four or more of these tables, of these you know, places that you put the lay the bodies, and they would be in different stages of decomposition. Could you start with one, and you know, a few years later, then there would be another one, or, or a couple months, or whatever it was. You'd put another body on another table, and so this body over here would be in a, a further... Um, level of decomposition than the new than the new body. And then the same thing over here. Like maybe you know Aunt Edna Aunt Edna would die you know a few years later, and so you'd have like this one that, that died like ten years before, and this one died like three years before, and so they're in different stages of decomposition. So maybe by the time you got you know you're over here, like okay, all these three people are dead. It's been like you know fifteen twenty years, and we we really need some space. And so what they would do, these things were these caves or these tombs were reusable. They would take the bones off of one of the tables and put them into a, a, into a, a clay, clay pot called an ossuary. It's known as a bone box, right? And then they would, they would clear it all off, put them in these bone boxes, and set them either on a shelf or, or behind, the, uh, behind the, the, the table there. Um, or if it wasn't, or the body wasn't quite ready yet, they'd push it off of the backside and let it finish decomposing on the floor uh, and then put the fresh body on the table. <clears throat> but... It's interesting to know that he says, what did he say? Um, put him, you know, p place him in a tomb, cut into the rock. So this is a man-made tomb. This is a very expensive deal. I mean, this is a handmade. Man, you know, men and women had to go, and probably, you know, just the men of the day had to go and use their tools to cut a tomb into the rock to make a tomb. But this was brand spanking new. This was a new tomb that no one had been placed in. No other bodies are in, in there decomposing. This is a brand new one, right? Um, 
so yeah, it's, it's, why is this? So, so that there would no be, be no mistake that this was Jesus who was resurrected because there was no other bodies in there. Not, you know, you know like I said, like there were probably th- three or four tables, but this was the only body in this tomb. He's the only one. Because here's the implications if they had not buried Jesus. Think about this. If, if Jesus hadn't been rescued, and, and you know, Jesus' body hadn't been rescued by Joseph and Nicodemus, um, think about this. You know, they, you know, the disciples didn't have much, if any, money. I mean, they had some women that followed him that were his financiers. And so he may have gotten like a shallow grave, you know, maybe like a, you know, a few feet deep, right? A lot of times they would just bury him in a shallow grave um, out, out, in the, out there in the desert. But most likely because he died the death of a criminal and no one would have been bold enough, you know, because they all ran away, right? No one would have been bold enough to go and approach them to get his body. He died the death, death of a criminal. He would have been buried in the, in the burial of a criminal, which was this, to be thrown into this garbage heap. There was a valley, there, or there, still there today, there's a valley south of the temple complex. That's the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And this, this word, this, this valley is the word Gehenna which Jesus would refer to all the time uh, whenever, he, whenever Jesus is quoted as is talking about hell, he used the word Gehenna, which referred to the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was the, which was the garbage heap. They would throw all the garbage. They would, it was the toilet. They would, they would take all their, all their refuse and dump it into the valley. So it was, also the, it was a septic and the trash heap. And it was also the place where people would, people's bodies were thrown that didn't have enough pe- you know, money or they were criminals. So like these thieves that died on the cross with Jesus, they were probably thrown into the valley of Ben-Hinnom to decompose and to burn, be burned. Um, because there was no one, no one to claim their bodies, most likely. And so... Um, and so, every, so think about this. This is also the place where uh, it's, it's, it's referred to that the worm never sleeps and the, and the fire never dies. So Jesus, think about this. If, if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had not claimed Jesus' body, he would have been thrown into the garbage heap with the thieves. He would have been thrown into the place that Jesus called hell. This is so important that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saved Jesus' body. This is huge. God in this moment was using others after Jesus' death in order to fulfill scripture and Jesus' messianic role in history. Who else was a witness to this? Let's look at the women. They followed the body. You know, why, why does he use this? I mean, of course, I mean, the women back there, their, their testimony wasn't worth anything um, in, the, in their culture. Uh, but, but Luke is, all throughout Luke, we've been seeing this incredibly dynamic way that Luke is referring to and use, using and utilizing the testimony of women in the life of, of the gospel that he's writing. And so here, he's writing yet again about the women. They followed Jesus' body to see exactly where they would lay it. And so here's the thing. They knew exactly where the body was laid. I mean, not just the women. The, the women discovered this, and, then we'll, and, we'll, and we'll find out why later. But, but this is very important because people, all the Jewish leaders and the Romans knew exactly where, he had, uh, uh, where they had laid Jesus' body. Um, this is, so this is laying to rest the accusation of them, you know, the women you know, going to another empty tomb and claiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead when he actually hadn't. Because you remember this, you know, they, they, the Romans knew exactly where Joseph and Nicodemus had buried the body because they set up a post outside the next day. They set up a post outside with a garrison of soldiers to protect it. 
and sealed it up at the request of the Jewish leaders. So first, you would think, you know, that Romans would not just be like, okay, here's where it was. Here's where Joseph and Nicodemus said they buried it. We're just going to trust them and, and seal it up. No, they would probably have opened the tomb, you know, opened the stone, looked in there, verified, probably like a little you know, toe tag or something like that, you know, seen, okay, verified this is Jesus's body. Awesome. Roll it back up and they sealed it up with either like a, like a wax or like a, or a cement, right? Um, so that it would be sealed. Basically, like, in essence, you can envision that they would seal it up so good, so well, um, that Joseph probably would, would have had to buy a new tomb. Uh, buy a new tomb because the Romans were making sure that it was, as, as, as it says in other, other books, other Gospels, it was as secure as possible. At the request of the Jewish leaders. Because they were staking their lives on it. Then the women, after seeing exactly where Jesus' body was, went back to prepare the materials for a traditional burial and funeral according to the Jewish tradition. And they rested, what? They rested on the Shabbat, on Sabbath, according to the Jewish laws and customs. Because again, these were law-abiding and level-headed citizens, not untrustworthy and fanatical rebels and insurrectionists. These were people that that are attesting to these things. That you can go back and verify their witness, their eyewitness te- you know, testaments, eyewitness statements. Everyone knew exactly what happened. Everyone knew exactly where Jesus' body was. This is very important. Now, we're going to get to the, the good part. The good part is, you know, remember, we're, we're reading all this stuff through the lens of the, what, the resurrection. But this is a very important theological uh, understanding and for our lives today, like we talk about meaning and purpose. What is the meaning and the purpose for us today, 2,000 years removed from the burial of Jesus Christ? What is the hope? What is the joy? Like I said, Luke's purpose was so that our joy may be complete, right? So what is it that continued on? Because it talks all and all over the all over the place in this in the latter part of the all the letters of the New Testament. Why is the burial of Jesus important? What is it that is the hope and the joy of the burial of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul is one of the most amazing proponents of what is the importance and the vitality of the resurrection, I'm sorry, of the burial of Jesus Christ for us today. He says this in in Romans chapter 2. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were, there's the word, buried with him. We were buried with him by baptism into death. Here's the lens of the resurrection. Just so, uh, um, in order that, or the so that, right? The so that is right there. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead will not die again death no longer rules over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all time 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And, you do, not, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. I love how he says weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under, sin, under the law, but under grace. So that we were buried with Christ. We died with Christ. Our old self, our sin nature, everything that was icky and, and broken and sinful, and everything that was keeping us and separating us from God the Father is dead, has been crucified. Look, you know, I was talking about a couple weeks ago, Colossians chapter 2, or Colossians chapter 1. The nails of his cross crucified my old self with him. It died and was buried with Christ so that we would live. So that you would walk in a new way, the new way, the, the way, the truth, and the life, right? So that we can come to the Father through Jesus, through the death of Jesus. The old self was crucified so that the body ruled by sin, our thinking, our broken thinking, our broken ways, our, our dead spirit, our, our, the deadness in us, as it says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, would be made alive. So that our dead self would be rendered powerless. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We should have, you know, should have, this last Sunday, we should have, you know, sung the song, you know, I'm no longer a slave to sin, right? I am a child of God, because that's what it means. We were set free from sin. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave to this world. I'm no longer a slave to my old stinking thinking, my old tapes. I'm no longer a slave to other people's opinions. I am no longer a slave to the powers and the authorities in the unseen realms as they try to deceive me, to trick me, to fool me, to stumble me, to trick me up. I am no longer a slave to them. I can say no and tell them to go back to hell where they belong and where that old self has been crucified and is buried says this in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Well, I should have saved it. I guess I didn't. Colossians chapter 3 has this incredible juxtaposition, this incredible dichotomy that it illustrates between who we were and who we are and who we're meant to be. It says this, this is 1 through 17. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly, thing, or earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden or buried with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, consider dead all the things that which are to your earthly nature. I love that in the NSB. It says that basically that word is simply dead. So you also, you must consider dead, not necessarily putting to death, but this, think about this and, and understand, wrap your mind around that all these things that used to be in you and alive and you know, gross and nasty are now dead. They've been crucified. 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked, you know, you once walked in these things but you, well, uh, when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. The stinking thinking, the old tapes, the worldly ways, the, the, the power and the authorities in the unseen realm. Put them all away. Put them all away. Malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on, I love that, have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly beloved. I love that. Think about it. This is who you are. Hear these words again. You, therefore, you, as God's, you are God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved. You don't have to question it. It says it right there. You are holy and dearly loved. Now, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching and, ad, and all in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Buried, hidden with Christ in God. This is this, this new identity, these, these, this juxtaposition between the, the old man and the, and the new man. Paul is saying you have a new identity. This was who you are, but now you're this. Put, so put off all the things that used to be over here, the behaviors, because you're no longer that. That's not who you are. God has covered that. God has freed you from that. That's not who you are. Walk in this new way because you are a new person. And he talks about the old clothes versus the new clothes. You know, take off the old grungy, dingy nastiness that used to clothe your old identity. It's no longer your old identity, so you don't need those old clothes. And put on your new clothes, your new actions, your new living. Put on the new way, the way of Christ. What? So that. Do away with all of your old ways and put on God's new and better way. This whole concept of you know, dying to self or dying, you know, the word is you know, in regards to self and the, the whole death of self, all these things, the, both of these things are, are connected and completed at the cross and in the tomb. Your old self has died. And so, and we live our, our lives dead to those things and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love this. this is, so this is Peter basically saying, okay, if, we're, if all these things are, are gone, if you're, this is your old self, it's, it's gone, all these old practices, your old clothes, put them away, they're gone, throw them away, don't even put them in the dirty laundry, just throw them away. 
You know, we've all had those with, with our kids, right? You know, those clothes that are just done. They're ready to go in the garbage. Just throw them in the dump. You know, not even in your house. Like, they stink. You know, that you maybe, like, fell in some poop or something like that. You know, throw them away in the dumpster far from your house. They don't even belong near you. And then, so now putting on the new clothes, putting on the new ways that we live. And this, so this is Peter's admonition to this. This is Peter's way here say, saying live. You know, so therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, all that, arm yourselves, also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is what finished with sin. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I don't care about it. I don't want it. I'm finished with it. Right? So that you would live the remaining time in the flesh, in this world, in, this, in, this, in our worldly existence, the, the rest of this human life, so that we no longer live this time in the sarks, in the fleshly realm, no longer for human desires. Because we're surrounded by humans. We oftentimes can take on those human desires, which we try to keep pushing those off, right? And putting on God's desires, you know, but no longer for human desires, but for God's desires. That word will is the same word for desires. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles chose to do choose to do, carrying on in in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. He's like, stop living that way. You have permission. I've given you, God is saying, I give you permission to be weird. Be weird as Jesus is weird. Have life the way that the world doesn't. The way that, you know, that, that has meaning and hope and, and depth and joy. True value, eternal value. Not just something to try to make this life a little bit more enjoyable until you die. Something that has true substance. This is kind of my, my version of this, you know, this uh, of Paul's statement in Romans 8. Said those who focus on their desires and ways of thinking on the world's, I'm sorry, those who focus their desires and ways of thinking on the world's culture and values live their lives like the like the world's culture and values. Those who des, whose desires and ways of thinking are focused on the culture and values of the Spirit of God and His kingdom live their lives like the Spirit of God and 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 this kingdom according to these things. They, they live out these principles. They live out the way of the kingdom. They live out the way of the Spirit and the kingdom of God. We focus on living our lives, knowing that our old self, our old tapes, our old, you know, grungy, you know, everything, the old clothes, the old self was crucified with Christ and was buried so that we would live, truly live, Jesus died so that we would die with him. And Jesus rose so that we would rise. So that we would walk our lives right now in the flesh during this time, not for human desires, but for his desires. That we would walk this life in the way and the truth and the life. That we would walk this life and live this life in, in love by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That we would live this life in the newness of life. He who knew no sin became sin 
became our old self, crucified it with him, so that we would become the righteousness of God. If anyone is in Christ, it says he is a new creation. The old self, right, has passed, has been buried, is gone, is in the dumpster. And the new has come. A new way, a new joy. That's why I love rounding this all about. In the, in the case for Christ, like this is why he doesn't say give a hope for the, um, no, or get, to give a defense for the facts and the figures of the things that you've mentally assented to that you believe. No, he, sa- he says, be ready in every circumstance to give a defense for the hope, for the purpose, for the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the goodness of life with Christ, with life living by the power of his Holy Spirit, the life in the church, the life in the community of the followers of Jesus Christ, the followers of the way. Give a defense for the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of your faith, of the newness of life, of the joy set before you, that your joy may be complete, that we can go and share our joy, share our hope, share our peace by sharing the love of Jesus Christ with those in our world, with our brothers and sisters in, in Christ here at Shift Church, at other churches, our other brothers and sisters around in the greater Big C Church, in this valley and across the world, you know, random people that we meet along the way, you know, flying on an airplane or in line for this or in line for that, or just random conversations of, of people that we meet and discover. And so that we can give a hope. We can share, we can share love and, and give hope to the world around us. To your friends and your family, co-workers, those who you encounter in your, in your daily lives, those who you're praying for, who you're praying for, that you would have a chance to share the joy, to share the hope, to give and share defense for the hope that's within you. Maybe make a list of those. Make a list of, of every person, of, of, you know, just say three people. Three people, start praying for three people to come to faith in Jesus, that you can have an opportunity to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, that the life that you're living now in this world is being lived in the newness of life in community with the church, in community with other brothers and sisters who love and serve Jesus by loving and serving one another in this church, in your, in your, in your, in your body of believers, wherever you're at. And, and, and pray for the Lord. to even, even before you make a list, maybe just pray for the Lord to, to put certain people on your heart. And then the next few days, go out and, and, uh, and start looking, start seeking, start writing down names as, as the Lord puts them on your heart to pray for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ and to use you as the catalyst for faith in other people so that they, too, can experience the death of their old sin nature and the newness of life, the, the, pr- the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. As we all walk together in the newness of life, walking in our faith and encouraging one another in the church to continue, keep going, keep going. The world around us is, you know, sometimes is terrible, sometimes is, is disheartening, but keep going. There's hope, there's joy to be found in this life, not just in the life to come. We know that that's coming. We know that the hope and the joy is coming. But we can give each other hope and joy in this life here today in the now because we can live and walk by the Holy Spirit and living the joy of the kingdom of God here today with one another 
in the church and as body believers. Let me pray for us, and we'll, and we'll end our time together today. Lord, we thank you for this time. God, I pray for, um, Lord, that your word would go forth in our hearts and our minds, that it would take, take uh, just, Lord, that you would uh, take a seat in our lives, that your hope, your joy, that your truth would, would be foundational to the very core of who we are as believers, that, that you would take up residence in the core of our lives, that you would be, in all things, that you would be preeminent, um, and, uh, and that we would walk by the direction and the presence of your Holy Spirit in every single day of our lives, in every decision we make. And God, just empower us, Lord. Empower us to, to walk in the newness of life. Empower our steps, Lord, to walk in the trajectory that you've designed for us. We want to follow you, God. We want to know you. We want to say and do the things that you are leading us to say and do in our everyday lives. Lord, empower us with supernatural living. Lead us in the path of, of eternal life and joy. For in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. All right. We'll see you guys next time.